2: This is a CBC Podcast.
3: Hi, Lini. Hey. Lini. you're normally based in Yellowknife, but tell me where I've reached you today. Yeah, so I'm talking to you from Fort
4: Simpson in the Northwest Territories. Um, My partner and I drove here. Uh, Yeah, that's where we are right now.
3: And why did you decide
4: to do that? We decided to leave because the... Wildfires. One in particular was moving closer to Yellowknife. Um, And despite the fact that at the time an evacuation order had not been issued, we felt that we would be safer if we left. And we knew that we would, we're both journalists, we knew that we would be able to do our jobs from a different location.
3: I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you doing this in the midst of all of this. I, I should make it clear to our listeners that we're actually talking on Friday. Um, I know Mm -hmm. the situation in the Northwest Territories is changing quickly. Um, But before we do anything else, maybe you could introduce yourself for our listeners.
4: Yeah, my name is Lini Lambrink. I'm a reporter for CBC North, and I'm based normally in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories.
3: And I'm Laura Lynch. This is What on Earth? And can you paint us a picture of what it's been like for you covering this wildfire season in the Northwest Territories?
4: it's been unprecedented. I've worked in the north for two and a half years. Wildfires are a normal part of um, the boreal forest. They are a needed part of, of the ecosystem, but they are burning more intense, more severe, more frequent here in Canada because of climate change. And as a result, we've been reporting since May on communities that are threatened um, put on evacuation alert, put on evacuation order. I'm going through it now, but about 60% of the territory's entire population is currently under an evacuation order.
3: Does it ever make you think twice about living there?
4: Yes. One of the things that I really love about the north and Yellowknife is that connection. I'm able to be outside a lot, but the smoke has really hindered that this summer. So it's, I've started to second-guess. Um, you know, if one of the things that I love so much about here I can no longer do safely, you know, do I really want to be here? I probably don't want to be in a place where this is happening routinely, but I also have, I also love Yellowknife and so does my partner. So that'll be things for us to think about moving forward.
3: That is just so tough. All, all that anxiety, um, all that doubt, the smoke, obviously, um, I just want to get to what we're going to be talking about today, though, because you're going to tell us about a fire that happened in the Northwest Territories last year, last fall, actually, right?
4: Yeah. So while things are feeling um, pretty grim and stressful right now, um, this is a story
5: that brings me some hope. Let me take you to where it happened. Scotty Creek is a remote research station, tucked among the trees on the northwestern shore of Goose Lake. It's 50 kilometers south of Fort Simpson in the Northwest Territories. It's a scientific sanctuary, hidden away in the sprawling wilderness, set up in a wetland that drains into the creek it's named after. Want
1: we'll to have lunch around one or something like that?
5: Bill Quinton is something of a camp dad.
1: Oh, we could have a sooner. Are you getting hungry? Okay, what am we doing now?
5: He's a professor of geography and environmental studies at Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. His focus is hydrology, how water moves through the Earth's crust. Bill came up to Scotty Creek for the first time back in the 90s.
1: So I remember the, the helicopter pilot, um, I remember we were sort of telling him where the kinds of places where we would wanted to land. And he, he didn't want to land. He He said it was just too wet, but it was a little hairy, you know.
5: Bill eventually established a camp, but he's had to move it a few times over the years.
1: Permafrost thaw is a, a real active process here due to climate warming. And that uh, subsides the ground and causes flooding and all kinds of conditions that aren't good for a you know, camping experience.
5: But being close to permafrost thaw is one reason Scotty Creek is so popular with researchers.
1: The work here, historically it started off as a place to study water, hydrology, water resources. So that's still a central theme here. But, you know, as as time went on, the research questions broadened out. So hydrology for sure, but also climate scientists, people who are studying um, aquatic ecology, lakes, uh, forest ecology, greenhouse gases, uh, carbon cycling, biogeochemistry, the whole kind of gamut.
5: Scientists from all over the world do research at Scotty Creek. Canada, the US, Europe, Korea, Russia, even, and organizations around the globe, including the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, use data collected here to advise top level policymakers on how to combat climate change, limit global warming, and adapt including research on how the thawing permafrost here has interfered with the livelihoods of the indigenous Dene peoples. The research station is on the traditional lands of the Tleilikwe First Nation, LKFN for short, in Fort Simpson. Bill held the lease for the camp from the territorial government until last August when he transferred it to the First Nation.
0: What does it mean for Scotty Creek to be indigenous-led? It means a whole bunch of things.
5: This is Dieter Kazon. He was at the transfer ceremony last year when the First Nation took control of the research station's lease. At the time, he was LKFN's Director of Lands and Resources.
0: When you think about like past grievances many First Nations have had with uh, researchers, there's always been, uh, they take but they never give it back. People have become famous or people have written theses on Information that they've gathered, but never cited where the information came from, or never appreciably gave credence to the people that shared that knowledge with them to begin with. And it's, I don't know, it might be a bold statement, but like in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, like Scotty Creek being indigenously led, we can set a tempo and level of expectation on how interactions should occur in regards to gathering information on our traditional territories and from our people and the sharing of an exchange of information um, is a two-way street like even one of the young new researchers amber she's quite literally like what how can i help you like what can my research project be on to help you so for lkfn it's like that's that's a really nice thing to hear like what can we work on Well, (laughs) it's just i was it was taking i was taken aback when i first heard her say that
5: Bill and Dieter work together closely now. Bill as the director of the station, Dieter as the executive director of the LKFN, with the First Nation playing a big role in the work that happens here. The team at Scotty Creek, they're proud not only of the collaboration and of making an international destination for climate researchers, but of their research legacy.
1: I mean, the station has been running for well over 20 years, and we have... An archive that's, I won't say it's unprecedented, but it's unusual to have that length of record at this latitude.
5: But as the transfer ceremony unfolded, a sign of what was to come was visible on the horizon. Smoke rising up from a wildfire burning across the lake about 40 kilometers away.
1: The irony, of course, is the focus of this this station being on understanding the causes and impacts of climate change. And of course, uh, it's A climate warming event that came and uh, burned down a big chunk of a station.
5: A pair of wildfires drew closer and closer to Scotty Creek throughout the fall of 2022. One swelling in from the southwest, another from the southeast. Bill was far away from camp at the time. He was glued to his computer, watching the satellite imagery of the fires, refreshing for updates from the territory's wildfire agency. It was a grim picture.
1: There's no rain in sight. The winds are coming from the direction of the fire and it's moving at a rate of about a kilometer a day. So that's when I started to get a little concerned.
5: As the fires approached, so did Mason, Domenico, and William Alger. The camp had been evacuated, but the two men headed in to help wildland firefighters protect the infrastructure. Not just tents, but research equipment, some of it abandoned mid-experiment.
6: We were just trying to support them as much as we could, knowing that there was a reduced capacity given the time of year.
5: That's Mason, the station's research technician, and this is William Alger, Scotty Creek's land guardian.
7: We're out here for about a week or so, just cutting, cutting away at the fire line and trying to fireproof the camp as best as possible.
5: The smoke was thick, particularly in the mornings. At times, they could see the flames across Goose Lake. They knew it was coming and they were determined to be ready for it.
6: So we came in, we did the fire break, we set up the sprinklers, we had made other trips in to restart the sprinklers just to keep soaking the ground to hopefully keep the fire at bay.
7: We thought we had the camp covered. We covered it as best as we could.
6: And I I left feeling good. I'm like, okay, we we got nice clear brush. It's all away from camp. It'll take, you know, (laughs) force of nature to come through and and hit camp, which it, it turns out it did.
7: On Thanksgiving Day, when I was in town and I looked over to Scotty Creek and I see this big plume of smoke coming up. And that's when I knew that this camp was struck by the fire.
5: Bill heard the news from a local pilot.
1: Called me up and said, hey, you know, Bill, uh, I would just flew over your camp and one of your tents is on fire. So, yeah, it was kind of like a, a nightmare come true in a way. <laughs> yeah.
5: A few days later, LKFN put out a statement about what had happened. The First Nation criticized the Northwest Territory's wildfire agency for not attacking the fire, even though it was close to the research station. In an email to CBC News, a wildfire information officer for the territorial government said extreme winds had made it unsafe to send crews in. He also said efforts to protect Scotty Creek were hampered by how late in the season the fire was burning. Crews brought in sprinklers to protect the station when the fire made its first pass but they were removed because they froze and stopped working. Then a helicopter had trouble picking up water. Nearby, lakes were starting to freeze over.
1: It was, it was tough, um, unprecedented. Uh, no one expected a mid-October fire. Yet, there it was.
5: Mason and William had been among the last to leave Scotty Creek before the fire hit. And a few days later, they were the first to go back and survey the damage.
7: It was like walking to an apocalyptic movie, kind of. It's like, there's still ash in the air. There's still like, you still smell that fire coming from the ground, like coming off of the material and stuff like that. You could definitely tell it was like a thick smog in the air. And it was, yeah, it was very daunting. Cause it's like, so much is gone. Like you, like we were just there like weeks before and it looks so much different now.
5: The fire nearly destroyed the camp bill has pegged the damage to be worth two million dollars. The cleanup and restoration efforts started almost right away but eight months later the damage is still obvious. In the winter you can reach the camp by snowmobile but in the summer the only option is to fly. So in the middle of June I'm sitting in a float plane as it lands on Goose Lake sending out a spray of water behind us. The pilot does his best to swing us close to the dock, where two people crane to grab the side of the tiny aircraft as it drifts past oh,
8: come on over.
5: with their bare hands.
8: We go. How's it going, Mason? Good,
5: buddy? As I clamber down onto a dock, one of the first things I notice is a red canoe bobbing in the water. Its plastic hull is melted and warped, a wooden paddle on the floor of the canoe is singed black. This is where I meet Bill Quinton in person for the first time. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Bill gives me a tour. From the dock, we head up a path along a small forested hill. There's a shipping container on the left, topped with big solar panels. The camp runs on the sun when it can and propane when it has to. Miraculously, Scotty's power system survived the inferno. I'm told if it hadn't, the rebuild might not have been possible.
1: Things look at this point pretty pretty normal
5: in our walk. We pass between two other survivors of the fire, a pair of orange and white tents called Weather Havens. They're long and domed like giant canvas yule logs. The Weather Havens are Scotty Creek's biggest structures. One of them is a sort of workshop right now. Its entrance is melted, the fabric ripped, its silver insulation peeking through. The other is the kitchen tent, which seems to be in better condition. We keep going along the path when...
1: But it's when you sit around this corner here and you take a look at at what we have on the south side of the camp. That's where the bulk of the fire occurred.
5: The forest used to be so thick here. You couldn't see beyond a few meters. Now, the few trees still standing are dead and black. Their root systems were devastated by the flames, and they're threatening to topple over in every gust of wind. The large buildings Bill mentioned... They were another set of weather havens, reduced to their footprints, two gray rectangles that you can still see on the ground. Later, just outside the camp, Mason Dominico, the research technician, shows me what's left of one research site.
6: So this is one of Michael Braverman's uh, experiments, and he's looking at refreezing the ground through thermosiphons.
5: Oh, cool. What are thermosiphons? Great question. They're used to cool the ground. They look like big tubes, one part buried, the other reaching up into the air. These ones are filled with a fluid, which gets cold in the winter, sinks to the bottom of the tube, and brings that colder temperature with it. The warm liquid rises to the top of the tube, where it will then cool off, continuing that cooling cycle without the help of humans. Thermosiphons are already being used in Canada's north to stop permafrost thaw below some pieces of infrastructure. A church, an airport, a highway. But Michael Braverman is testing out a more cost-effective version. One student already plans to use Braverman's thermosiphons for climate-resilient tiny homes in the north. The walls are less likely to crack if the ground below them stays frozen solid. But
6: as you can see, yeah, the battery is completely fried. The logger box that it was held onto. Again, you know, nothing. Yeah. Completely gone. This is what remains of the battery. Okay. Shredded solar panels.
5: So I was laying in my tent, kind of just scrolling on my phone, and I kept hearing movement behind me, like kind of towards the tree line. It's my second night at camp when there's a bit of excitement. Amber, one of the research assistants, hears it. going on. Uh, We got a bear. And then the next thing I know, Will is yelling like, hey, bear, everyone stay in your tents. Then a gunshot. I'm in my sleeping bag, my heart is racing, and I'm picturing a dead bear not far away from my tent. It takes me a little while to get the nerve to go investigate. Were you in your tent?
7: Yeah, I was just I just finished taking off my boots and Mason's like, well, there's a bear. I was like, What? He's like, There's a ferris, so I jumped out instantly and I didn't I went out without shoes and I grabbed my shotgun instantly. I saw him over there right up and I shot just shot right above him and then he took off in the in the bush there.
5: Okay, so you said you shot above his head?
7: Yeah, I shot above his head to scare him away.
5: Okay. So
7: he reacted to the shot fairly well. He took off I'm probably going to stay up a little late tonight. Make sure he doesn't come back around because a curious bear is. It, it could be a dangerous bear.
5: Was he a curious bear?
7: He was definitely curious. He was smelling out the area.
5: A curious black bear. Moments like these are exactly why William Alter is on site.
7: I'm an uh, LKFN guardian for Scotty Creek here. So I protect the researchers and the camp from bears and any other animals that may make their way into camp and that could pose a, as a risk to the campers. I also have to make sure that the researchers that are out here are staying within their research licenses.
5: William is a 24-year-old Dene man from the Lakeway First Nation.
7: When I'm not doing that, I'm also... I'm recording population density of the other types of wildlife that I see out here in the day So like moose, caribou. My main concerns are species at risk. So it's good to get a a baseline data of those. So that LKFN knows what we're dealing with out here and can make better um, actions according to these data findings that we're recording.
5: He takes his job very seriously.
7: This is like a once in a lifetime job you get. Like, there's nowhere else else like this out there in the world. So, and not only am I doing this for myself, I'm also doing this for my people, the future generations, so that they have something to work towards and look forward to when they grow up.
5: Cleaning up Scotty Creek is a huge job. The work started before the snow covered everything last fall. And now that it's melted again, there's still loads more to do.
6: Yeah, so we were bucking the trees up into about eight-foot lengths.
5: That's Mason again.
6: So that they're a bit more manageable to bring across camp.
5: Who has the lucky task of dragging them out?
6: Well, undergrad students. <laughs>
5: <laughs> there are four of them helping Mason and others with the rebuilds. Had this been a normal year, they'd be doing research here too. Amber, the research assistant, says it's worth it. Oh, I am so excited. I love what I do. I love the research, but getting to be here and getting to help build a research station, I think, is so much more important. Helping the community kind of come back from this fire. And everyone's help is sorely needed. A construction crew of four was expected to get here the day before I did, but so far only one actual construction expert has arrived.
1: Yeah, yeah, like uh,
7: the pressure's on, all eyes on me.
5: <laughs> William Landry is remarkably good-natured about being the only skilled carpenter on site.
1: But it is what it is. We can do with what we have, and we're getting by. You guys want We got another sheet. You got it.
5: The race to finish this particular tent platform is on. There's a storm brewing in the distance. Bill built parts of this camp before, but he isn't a carpenter by trade.
1: I don't think we glued, you know, the last one, the last time we did. The older units you made? Uh, Well, the one that we looked at, the eight by 10, the ones that burned.
5: The first platform is done before the rain starts, but the sense of urgency in fact, it underlies the entire rebuild project. Scientists have more than 100 instruments out on the land beyond Scotty Creek. And until the camp is restored, most of those researchers aren't allowed to come back and take stock of what's been lost. Which matters, because the fire has created an opportunity. That might sound odd, the research station burning down being an opportunity, but that's exactly how the scientists are trying to see it. While Canadian researchers have studied the effects of wildfire for a long time, they usually head out to a site after it's been burned. Here at Scotty, there's information from before the fire, a record that goes back decades, which can be used to draw comparisons and conclusions. This was so important to one researcher that he convinced LKFN to let him return before anyone else.
8: Oh, it's like my baby. (sighs) That's pushing it a little bit, but I guess to some degree it is.
5: This is Oliver.
8: My name is Oliver Sonnentag, and I'm an associate professor in Canada research chair in the Department of de Geographie at the Université de Montréal.
5: Oliver got special permission to come back within weeks of the fire, and he's been back a few times with his team. He's not here right now, but miraculously, while the research station doesn't have cell service, it does have the internet. So we jump on a video call to talk about his work.
8: I went to Scotty Creek last week uh, with two colleagues from the U.S. and we were there to do basic maintenance and complete the installation of a recently rebuilt carbon flux tower.
5: It's actually called an eddy covariance tower, but carbon flux is slightly easier to say. As the permafrost is thawing and the environment is changing from a forest to a wetland, the researchers want to know what effect that's having on the carbon cycle. Too much carbon in the atmosphere is the leading cause of climate change. Most people already know this in the context of cars, coal, and livestock. Oliver is trying to understand how much carbon is being released into the atmosphere as the permafrost thaws, and how much is being pulled back into the ground and the trees and the vegetation that's growing. The tower monitors the rate at which this is happening.
8: So in the site at Scotty Creek is part of a 2,000-kilometer transit between central Saskatchewan in the Beaufort Sea near in Novik. So we set up a series of these towers to look at how climate change and associated warming and changing disturbance regimes affect how Canada's boreal forests interact with the atmosphere as permafrost thaws.
5: The tower had been collecting this data for about a decade before the fire happened.
8: The tower structure experienced heat stress and it's certainly not, it is not safe to climb it anymore, right? In all our instruments at the base, everything went up in flames.
5: But fires, like the one that swept through Scotty Creek, release enormous amounts of carbon, and Oliver was desperate to study that.
8: We have the, a unique opportunity to understand how yeah, wildfire activity interacts with permafrost thaw and how the interaction of these two affect how this landscape functions as part of the climate system, uh, turning a disaster into an opportunity.
5: After a series of visits and logistical hurdles, the tower was up and running again. He only just found out the rebuild was successful. But he's not the only one eager to get back. Bill says about 20 researchers have equipment here at Scotty, many of them with the same drive as Oliver.
1: For example, from the point of view of an ecologist, they might want to know what the first vegetation was after it was burned. Um, And the hydrologists might want to know how the fire uh, might influence the rate and pattern of permafrost thaw.
5: And if you don't understand the problem, you can't come up with solutions.
1: If we delay, then it's hard to attribute uh, the fire to, to certain processes that you're observing. It's like coming to an accident scene. Like, it's kind of, if you wait too long, things happen. And uh, it's hard to interpret and attribute exactly what, what, what caused what. Right? So that's why we want to get back on site as, as soon as we can.
5: With all the brush now burned out, Bill tells me the risk of another fire in the area is low. At least for a while. A firebreak has been built that the team is planning to extend. And they want to invest in sprinklers and pumps of their own, rather than relying on what's provided by the territorial government. William Alger, the land guardian, he helped protect the camp last year. He'll help train more guardians to do the same. William says Scotty is like a goldmine of information, waiting to be harvested. He has big hopes for himself and for Scotty Creek.
7: I wish for a very successful rebuild. No more fires. (laughs) But I also do wish there'd be more influx of more people coming up to experience Scotty and LKFN, because we have a lot to offer, and I want to retire out here. (laughs) That's what I want to do. I want to work till I retire out here, because I love this job. I love being out here, and I want to make sure it
3: thrives. Lini also told us that while the research station was supposed to reopen soon, it's now being postponed because of the wildfires happening in the territories.
1: My name is Rudy Kelly, and I am an herboriginal. I am Chief. My dad was a great chief of the Simshen Nation, beloved by his people. But at home, with his family, he brought anger and pain. He told me that to succeed. I would have to leave everything behind. Now I'm on a journey to find out who and what my dad really was. The Herb Original is an all-new CBC podcast. Available now.
2: Hello.
3: Hi, Martin, it's Laura. Hi, Laura. This is Martin Olshinsky. He's a professor of environmental law at the University of Calgary. He's been watching the Alberta government closely these days as the politics of energy and renewables heats up.
2: It's gangbusters for sure. I mean, we are talking about, you know, uh, as one quick example, you know, the regulators assumed that we would reach one gigawatt of renewable energy by 2040. And we reached that 19 years earlier. We reached that last year or the year before last.
3: So I've been keen to talk to you, Martin, because despite that growth, the industry has been feeling, I guess, a bit of a chill from the Alberta government At the start of August, the province announced what it's calling a pause on all new big commercial projects until the end of February of 2024. Now, that doesn't apply to small private projects like putting solar panels on your roof. But Alberta Premier Danielle Smith says it's in response to a request from the Alberta Utilities Commission. It asked the province to review the approvals process for new projects, though... To be clear, the commission never actually asked for the moratorium. So, Martin, how big a surprise was that announcement?
2: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it was, you know, we're seeing this sort of steady drip of of op-eds. Everyone seems to be suggesting very clearly that they were completely blindsided um, by this. And in fact, the government has acknowledged and admitted, notwithstanding about a two-week gap, I guess, between the time that they've clearly decided to impose this moratorium and when they announced it, They seem to, they've said that, well, scheduling glitches prevented them from from having any kind of consultations with the industry before releasing it, which is just really, really hard to sort of comprehend, I think, in this context, bearing in mind the very significant um, impact that it's having and going to have.
3: Now, the Alberta government says this pause is about improving the regulatory framework around new renewables projects, but I'm wondering how robust the framework is right now. Is there room to create a better framework?
2: Probably, yes. I mean, you know, there, it probably should have, we should have clear guidance. And in fact, the, you know, the Alberta Utility Commission says as much in its letter. So we can improve our regulatory systems. And again, we have examples, that, you know, too many to count where, you know, a report comes up. Uh, and again, in various sectors where they say, this regulatory system could use some improvement. Can we, can we have an inquiry, bring the stakeholders together, make some recommendations? So that's all fine. What we almost never see is a pause on development in the interim, right? So we had, you know, and again, this goes back for some folks, you know, 2007, there was this Radke report, for instance, in the context of the oil sands and said that everything is just, we're we're not capable of keeping up with sort of the red hot pace of development. The the government never paused development. They never touched the brakes. They just said, okay, we're going to get on with trying to fix this. Uh, Royal Society of Canada report saying there's lax oversight of the oil sands. Nobody ever stopped development. They just said, okay, we're going to try to fix this. And so the, the, I think the thing that most people are concerned about and what you hear in the, in the commentary for sure is it's, it's not the inquiry itself into improving the regulatory system. It's this sort of unprecedented six-month pause.
3: Okay, there's another aspect to this I just want want to get you to address. Um, two of the biggest renewable energy projects in Canada are in Vulcan County, south of Calgary. Jason Schneider is the Reeve of Vulcan. For people who may not know, it's kind of like a mayor, but for a county rather than a town. Over the last decade, he says renewables have become the single biggest industry in Vulcan, overtaking agriculture and oil and gas, but he says the boom has led to concerns from some of his constituents. Here's what he says is the single biggest concern.
0: We want to make sure projects are done properly and that this isn't going to be, in 20 years, this isn't going to be uh, a liability where companies walk away from their from their projects because they're no longer financially viable. And let's not repeat these mistakes because we saw it happen with coal. We've seen it happen in gravel. We've seen it happen in oil and gas that the cheapest uh, reclamation plan is bankruptcy. And that's just, we we don't want to see that. And these are big, these are big projects. We just want to make sure that, uh, you know, when they reach the end of their lifespan, whatever that lifespan might be, whether it's 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, doesn't really matter. Just want to make sure that it's not the, it's not the local residents or the uh, provincial uh, taxpayers that are the ones left to
2: clean up a mess.
3: So Martin, what do you make of those concerns?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, so I, I like that whole quote and that whole passage because it talks about all of these other contexts where we know this has happened and we've never seen a pause. So yeah, I agree 100%. Let's let's learn from past mistakes. We have, you know, sub, an, an estimated 260 billion dollars in unfunded liabilities from the oil and gas sector in Alberta. We have all kinds of landscape level scarring on the on the eastern slopes from that little adventure in in reviving coal mining that happened a couple of years ago. So I, I, I don't think there's any problem with that. And so that, and that's great that the AUC is going to have this inquiry and we can have an honest conversation about what those reclamation liabilities look like, what is the nature of them, because I think there's a lot of confusion too about you know, just how bad these things may be for the land, how expensive are they to, to remove. But then I, what I really hope is that in that context, we go back because the oil and gas story is not over. The coal story is not over. We need to keep having those very serious conversations about those liabilities because those are a much bigger blight on the landscape. And, and and in terms of the quantity of money that Alberta taxpayers are potentially going to be taking on, a much more significant issue. So let's have an inquiry on all of it. You know, like let's have an inquiry on oil and gas reclamation and remediation liabilities. Let's have a clear understanding of what the issues are there. Let's not just take one sector and give it this discriminatory sort of what what appears to be the sort of like unfair treatment to single it out for these issues when all of these other sectors haven't been treated that way.
3: All right. I just want to take a, a little shift here. Premier Daniel Smith has said that the pause also has to do with regulations the federal government is pushing for around clean energy and natural gas power generation. And then that brings us to the other thing I wanted to talk to you about earlier this month. The federal government released a draft of its proposed clean energy regulations and it includes a 2035 goal for Canada's power grid to be net zero. Um, I just want you to listen to Danielle Smith's reaction. Ottawa's strategy seems to be to placate the environmental extremists while throwing regular Canadians under the bus. That's wrong. It's unacceptable, morally and financially. And Alberta's government will not go along with it. We will never allow these regulations to be implemented here. Full stop. So, Martin, first of all, what do these proposed regulations actually say about using fossil fuels for electricity?
2: Yeah, so what they say is that in 2035, there will be essentially a limit. There's an, an emissions limit for power generation, right? And then, but then they have various sort of exceptions and grandfathering clauses. So, for instance, you can use in 2035 in the normal course, you would, for instance, be able to rely on natural gas, but it would have to be abated, Right. So this is the new term that we talk about. Um, and, it, and it comes along with this notion of carbon capture and storage. Right. So we're told uh, <laughs> repeatedly by the industry here, especially the oil, and oil industry, Pathways Alliance, that, you know, CCS is proven, reliable and safe. It's something that already exists. They're really good at it. We're going to be experts about it. It also actually, though, grandfather. So, for instance, any plants, and, and uh, you know, the details are kind of shifting. And I think it's important to remember that these are draft regulations at this point, proposed regulations, but, for instance, like any gas plant that comes online between now and 20, 2025 would be grandfathered for 40 years, right? And so, again, this, so that would take us out into 2045. And then even unabated plants can operate uh, as peaker plants for a certain amount of time per year if you're worried about grid li- reliability, for instance. So what they do, though, for sure, is they change, I think, the economics of natural gas as a energy source in the province of Alberta and Saskatchewan. And I think at the end of the day, the way to understand Premier Smith and Premier Mo is that they are interested in preserving the incumbents in the natural gas incumbents in this space and preserving their privilege.
3: Premier Smith has said the proposed rules are unconstitutional. What do you make of that claim?
2: Yeah, so it's always you know you know predicting what a court will say about a regulation is you know it's always a bit of a there's always some uncertainty in that. But uh, what I would say is that if I was a betting person in my view knowing this area of law uh, fairly well the the proposed clean and energy regulations the federal ones are more likely constitutional than not okay and 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 what that what the government seems to be relying on the federal government is the what we call the criminal law power so this is section 9127 of the constitution that gives parliament the power to pass laws in relation to the criminal law and over 30 years, 40 years, the, our understanding of this provision is it's not just criminal law in the conventional sense, but it's really anything that Parliament may choose to prohibit and what we call uh, an evil that they may want to suppress. And we have over 25 years of jurisprudence supporting the use of the criminal law power for environmental protection. It was first used in the 1990s uh, to prohibit the, the toxic substances under what we call the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. And we've seen it used uh, in the last decade to uphold regulations under that same law to prohibit or restrict fossil fuels or or GHG emissions from the power sector, from renewable fuels, or sorry, from fuels by forcing the mixing of renewable fuels. So, So yeah, so there seems to be precedent here. And I would say that the weight of that precedent actually supports the federal government. It's certainly not anything near a slam dunk sort of unconstitutional law, the way that the premier would suggest.
3: You use two words there: toxic and evil. <laughs> I'm wondering if, if, if you're intending, or if if the way gov- the federal government would use the power would it be by labeling fossil fuels toxic and
2: evil? Well, so in fact you've you nailed it. I mean, so there's a couple of things there. So under SEPA, right? So SEPA, absolutely, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, CO2 carbon dioxide has been listed as a toxic substance, and that actually happened under the Harper government coal, you know, the phasing out of coal that was done at the federal level by the Harper government, actually. And then similarly, now these regulations and, and probably regulations banning uh, internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035, all of these are relying on SEPA. Um, and this idea of, of of toxic substances being a core of that. And then in terms of the evil, I mean, that's, that's the case law, that's the jurisprudence, right? So the courts don't want the parliament to sort of use the criminal law too broadly. There's like a, you know, a case in 2016, for instance, where the federal court and federal court of appeal both say, of course, climate change is an evil that parliament may choose to suppress with its criminal law power. Of course, you know, if it's causing heat waves, destruction of property, death, of course, this is something that parliament may try to curb and prohibit and restrain with its criminal law power.
3: There's another aspect to this as well and 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 that's when Premier Smith says Alberta's government will protect Albertans from these regulations and that they won't be implemented is that something that she can actually control?
2: No. It's not as though provinces act as gatekeepers for federal laws applicable within their, you know, within Canada. Provincial laws bind us directly and federal laws bind us directly. So in in Alberta you know, especially in Alberta, where we have a private energy market, and most of the operators are private companies. I mean, they have to comply with valid provincial laws. They also have to comply with valid federal laws. And so Miss Smith is or the premier is welcome to challenge these regulations. That's how these jurisdictional squabbles are supposed to be resolved. You challenge them in court, and then a court decides and and then we go from there. You know, it's it's, I think it's really important. I think the other thing that is just lost in all this too, if I may, is just that it's It's also profoundly undemocratic. You know, like, we have elections in Canada. We have provincial elections and we have federal elections. And whether, you know, the premier here in Alberta or in Saskatchewan, whether they like it or not, like, the Liberals are the government in Ottawa. And they have a right to govern. They have a mandate to govern. And that includes passing regulations. For the premiers to sort of say, we are going to trump the democratic mandate of this federal government government, because we don't like it, or because we want to preserve the interests of the incumbents and whatever, I just find that really, you know, that's one of the things I find really lacking in this conversation is just like how how arrogant and undemocratic that is.
3: Well, but she would say she was just she was just elected and has a mandate to to do what she's doing.
2: But she has a mandate, you know, her legislative mandate is set out in Section ninety two right, of the Constitution and the federal government's mandates set on Section 91. And, and you know, and so, uh, you know, for sure she can do whatever she wants within her own sort of like wheelhouse. They can justify it on, on the basis of regionalism, I guess, or you can say that Parliament's broken or you can say that Canada's broken. These are very popular things to be saying these days. But underlying all of it is a rejection of what, what is a clear, lawful, democratic mandate by the current government. So
3: between the reaction to the new federal rules and the pause on new renewable projects what does it all say to you about how the current government of Alberta sees the future of renewables and the renewables industry in the province
2: Yeah I mean I think we're in for a very rough ride you know the premier said in other times that you know we are a natural gas basin I mean I think that she's decided very clearly that come hell or high water and that's what you know and, and I and I make that I'm referring to that on purpose because of the fires that are the unprecedented fires, of course, that we have in Canada, that, that we are going to develop and we are going to use those natural gas reserves, that she's not prepared to leave them in the ground. She's not prepared to intertie, for instance, with hydro from B.C. to provide that stability to the grid. Um, she's not interested in east, west. She's, you know, she's what she wants is she wants to preserve natural gas's market power and interest in the province and that she will throttle. You know, she's already talked about, like, we're going to have natural gas and we're going to have a sustainable amount of renewables, I think is what she said. So, you know, it's very clear, I think, that it sounds like, in any event, the decision has been made within Cabinet that they will do everything they can to preserve a future, you know, and a a profitable future for the natural gas industry. And that they will throttle things accordingly to get there.
3: Martin Olszewski, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
2: You're very welcome.
3: We did ask for an interview about this with Premier Smith as well as several of her ministers. And initially we were offered an interview with the Environment Minister Rebecca Schultz. But we were later told the minister was no longer available. So we then asked the Alberta government about why it's pausing large renewable projects when it hasn't taken the same step for other sectors such as fossil fuels. We didn't get a response on that point. But here is part of a written answer sent to us on behalf of Minister Schultz. A temporary pause will help us create a stronger long-term regulatory system that includes and supports renewables development, as well as Alberta's agriculture lands, biodiversity, and the needs and concerns of landowners. We also asked about Martin Olshinsky's claim that it was undemocratic to suggest Alberta wouldn't implement the federal clean energy regulations. Here is some of the reply from Minister Schultz. We believe the draft federal 2035 net zero grid regulations are unconstitutional, irresponsible, unreliable and do not align with Alberta's emissions reductions plan. The statement goes on to say, the responsibility to power our electricity grid is the province's exclusive area of jurisdiction. That's all for us this week. Our team includes associate producers Danielle Piper and Emily Vance, producer Matt Muse. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Molly Siegel is our senior producer this week. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening.
2: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.